Hello, and welcome to Kick Out 299. I'm Rachel. My pronouns are they, them, and both of my matches today feature nut shots as a narrative device. And I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. Today, we are bringing you our first relaxed fit episode in lieu of a deep dive, and we'll walk you through four matches, two from each of us, and give you a breakdown on their background, why we love them so much, and much more. Please let us know if you like this episode format so that we know if it's something we should add to our regular rotation as we assess different kinds of content to bring you. Feel free to DM us at kickout299 on Twitter or send us an email at kickoutat299 at gmail.com. I am absolutely stoked. So without further ado, let's get into it. So first up, we have a match from Alicia, and that will be Kenta versus Yoshihiro Takayama from June 27th, 2004 in Currican Hall. Alicia, why don't you tell me about the first time you saw this match and what it meant to you at the time? So this match was among some of the first Kenta matches I ever watched when I was still a newer fan of Puro. And a new fan of his and just watching whatever looked interesting on YouTube and trying to get a sense of who he was as a wrestler and as a performer. He was in NXT at the time for context. So I was watching his work there concurrently. And I clicked on this one because I knew who Takayama was outside of pro wrestling. I had watched the Takayama Don Fry fight from Pride before I ever watched Puro. So I was really interested in how this match would look, knowing what I knew about Takayama through that fight. So, and this, this match was really the first time I felt like I understood something of Kenta as a performer and as a character. And as I would become a bigger fan of his and sit with more of his work and learn more about his career, I would come back to this match a lot. And I felt like you could learn a lot about Kenta the person through this match as well. Yeah, I actually remember when you showed me this match, that was the first thing you said to me was that this is the perfect introduction to Kenta as a person, as a character. So let's talk a little bit about the build, the backstory, if you will, to this match. Yes. So 2004 was a big year for Kenta. Maruken were the inaugural GHC Junior Heavyweight Champions. They had been champions since winning a tournament in July 2003. So they're a little ways into their reign. And this match against Takayama was Kenta's fourth trial in his seven trial series. And now the purpose of a trial series is to not only test a young and up and coming wrestler against their seniors in singles matches and subsequently elevate them, but to showcase them in front of audiences and signal to those audiences that the company thinks this person is a big deal and someone worth watching. And the remarkable circumstances surrounding Kenta's trial and what evolves from these series of matches make him the wrestler that people know him as today. And at this point, before the Takayama match, he had beaten Juventud Guerrera on January 17th. He lost to Yoshinari Ogawa on March 13th. And Ogawa uses his win there to challenge reigning champions Maruken to a match for the junior tag belt with Kotaro Suzuki. Ogawa and Kotaro lose that match on April 3rd, 2004 in Differ Ariaki. 
Marokan then challenged Misawa and Ogawa, reigning heavyweight tag champions, to a title match based off of beating Ogawa there. And then Marokan ended up losing that match on April 25th in the Budokan. But that is an outstanding classic Noah match. Um, and then at that point, too, Kenta had lost to Junakiyama as part of his trial series on May 14th. So some really incredible, important matches are happening for Kenta in a very short period of time in 2004. And there's some other things that are particularly important to highlight about Kenta's trial series. He debuts the G2S, the Go to Sleep, against Mitsuharu Misawa during his fifth trial match against him on August 28th. He begins his trials wearing these gray tights, but by the end of the series, he's wearing the chocolate banana shorts that would become his trademark style for many, many years. He grows his hair out into a mullet, and this is this is only notable in that he no longer <laughs> looks like a young boy anymore. He's 23 by the time he fights Takayama, but he begins the series at 22. So he's really, really young, but he sort of evolves into a, you know, like, a, like an actual young man in front of everyone's eyes during this series. And it's, it's just really notable by the time he gets to the end um, that he's not a young boy anymore. And his seventh and final trial is against Naomichi Marafuji, his tag team partner, on November 13th in Korokin. They're still junior tag champions, but this match is a real turning point in their relationship because Marafuji is Kenta's senior, having entered the All Japan Dojo about a year and some months after Marafuji. And while Marafuji expresses in his book, Heir to the Ark, that he wasn't really sure how to be a senior to Kenta when he first got to the dojo because they're pretty close in age, there's still some of that senior-junior dynamic to their relationship in the earliest years of Noah. Kenta defers to him a little bit, and you can see some of that senpai-kohai dynamic at times. When Marafuji tore his ACL in a multi-man tag match on March 21st, 2002, during his first and only GHD Junior Heavyweight run, that's actually when Kenta went from being just a young boy in Noah to getting some real crowd support and traction behind him. Marafuji needed to drop the title after he couldn't continue during a defense against Hashi, so Noah held a tournament to determine a new champion. Kenta went to the finals against Kanemaru and lost, but this is where fans became very interested in Kenta. When Marafuji returned from injury, Kenta said that while Marafuji was home, quote unquote, resting, Kenta grew up. And this is a fascinating little quote, and you can see the seeds being sown for what they would become to each other but they don't become true rivals there because the Marokan tag era begins not long after. And Marafuji also starts to move back and forth between junior and heavyweight wrestling. So Kenta's seventh trial match against Marafuji is the real turning point, And that's where you can pinpoint the beginning of their rivalry. Kenta has yet to win a singles match against Marafuji going into that match. And he doesn't beat Marafuji there either. But this match is nothing short of magic. I almost chose this one to talk about because of the botched Spanish fly and why that moment actually enhances that match. But there will come a time where I think Rachel and I will discuss Marokan in depth on this podcast. So I'll save it. Fingers crossed. Fingers <laughs> crossed. 
Regardless, the trial series leads to Kenta emerging as someone from their generation who could be a true equal to Marafuji and one day overcome him. They continued on as tag champions until June 5th, 2005. Yoshinobu Kanemaru and Takashi Sugira defeat them and end their historic 690-day tag reign. Marafuji mentions this fascinating conversation between them in his book that is probably half or more kayfabe, but he describes coming to Kenta after they lost their belts and asking him what he wanted to do. And at that point, Marafuji is already teaming with Minoru Suzuki, so he's making a play for heavyweight full time. Kenta apparently replied, I'll go at it alone. And Kenta goes on to win the GHC Junior Heavyweight Championship from Kanemaru at Destiny on July 18th, 2005. So Kenta's trial series in 2004 prepared him for his first singles title in NOAA by the time Destiny rolled around in July of 2005. And it's within that title reign that Kenta defeated Marafuji in a singles match for the first time. I truly can't stress enough how important these matches are for him and developing him into the wrestler that we know today. So all of that being said, of all of his seven trial matches, the Yoshihiro Takayama match in June 2004 has always been my favorite of the seven, and it's easily one of my favorite matches of all time. So I'm going to give you some background on Takayama to contextualize why this was an important match for Kenta. He was a big deal in MMA and Puro. He debuted for UWFI in the 1990s under Nobuhiko Takada and joined All Japan in 1997. During the roster split, he left All Japan with Mitsuharu Isawa and joined NOAA. He was a trainer in the earliest years of NOAA and had a direct hand in training the younger wrestlers coming up at the time, including Kenta. Him and Kenta are very, very close. They have a special bond. After joining NOAA, he went freelance, and this is what allowed him to compete for Pride. I mentioned his fight with Don Fry at Pride 21 on June 23rd, 2002, and this match is, is just nuts. It's one of the most famous MMA fights ever. Takayama doesn't win, but what he is able to withstand before Fry wins by TKO is remarkable. It doesn't make any sense. Highly recommend watching that one. He also has his debut MMA match against Kazuyuki Fujita at Pride 14. If you want to watch him against someone else you might be familiar with. Takayama didn't have a great record. He had one win and four losses before he stopped competing, but he left his mark on MMA forever with that Fry match. He wrestled primarily for Noah at points, but his freelancing took him all over throughout his career, and there were years where he actually had more matches in New Japan or back in All Japan. He also appeared in places like Zero One and notably DDT toward the end of his in-ring career, among other places. He is one of three men who have won all three major heavyweight titles, the IWGP Heavy, the GHC Heavy, and the Triple Crown. The other two men are Kensuke Sasaki and more recently, Keiji Muto. He was part of No Fear with Takao Mori. They're a fantastic tag team. You should absolutely watch their work in late 90s All Japan. They did continue into early 2000s Noah before... Um, Omori was more or less bounced from Noah, so you can watch them a little bit there, but truly late 90s All Japan and No Fear is fantastic. Um, he was also in No Mercy with Kenta, which doesn't happen until 2011, and we'll talk more about that in our future Noah Factions episode, but I have to mention that because it's the good shit. So going into Kenta's trial, 
Like I said, Takayama is a big deal. He's famous in Japan. He has this final boss aura to him because he's huge and imposing. And he has that shoot background through UWFI and pride. The way he was used in Noah during that time period is significant as well. Misawa defeated him to become the inaugural GHC heavyweight champion in the finals of the tournament to crown a champion on April 15th, 2001, which isn't a coincidence. Kobashi, who was in his prolific 735-day reign in 2004, had an amazing defense against Takayama on April 25th, 2004. Takayama became everyone's mountain to climb, someone you had to get past to really prove your mettle, and it made those victories all the more thrilling and significant. Now, the match itself. It's a short match. Kenta rejects Takayama's handshake immediately, which is not unusual for him. He kicks at Takayama's outstretched hand. He has everything to prove here, even against his trainer. Kenta is aggressive right from the bell, but he's totally outmatched. This matchup really doesn't make any sense with the older, larger, and much more experienced Takayama just lighting Kenta up with kicks, but Kenta just gets back up again and again and again. Even after the five-minute mark, when Takayama picks him up over his head and throws him over the top rope to the outside, which looks brutal. (laughs) Brutal. I, oh, (laughs) scream the first time, scream the second time. Around the seven minute mark, Kenta starts connecting with some slaps and Takayama sends him down to the mat again after a punch. But again, Kenta pulls himself up using the ropes on shaky legs. I'm always reminded of another recollection from Marafuji's book that is actually one of his most significant memories of Kenta in the All Japan Dojo. He watched Kenta spar with Junakiyama one day and noted that Kenta was no match for him in terms of physical ability or performance, but even in being battered, he hung in there. Marafuji said watching Kenta withstand that practice really made an impression on him and he never forgot it. It was inspiring to him. I always connect that quote to this match, but you can connect that quote to just about all of his trial matches with perhaps the exception of his winning effort against Guerrera. I think it goes beyond even his trial series as well, but I'll come back to this point. Kenta made his comeback against Takayama at about seven minutes and 40 seconds with his trademark swinging DDT into the corner, which remains a staple in his arsenal throughout his career. And then he connects with a swan dive missile drop kick. He goes for a pin, Takayama kicks out. He connects with a PK and goes for a more disrespectful pin with his foot on Takayama's chest, but Takayama wouldn't be having any of that and kicks out at one. That's so much of the fun of this match. Kenta is young and cocky and just a dick. He's got an incredible chip on his shoulder and he's hungry to prove himself. He chops Takayama down with more kicks and tries for another pin, but Takayama once again kicks out. I loved that cocky cover with his foot on Takayama's chest. To me, that just said it all because his face wasn't like necessarily gloating. He just was, he didn't look surprised or even irritated when Takayama kicks out at one. He just moves straight into the next set of kicks. He didn't really expect to win on that cover at all. He's just doing it to prove that he can to prove that he's good enough to afford one foot on Takayama's chest. It's just a really strong statement. It just sums up the match to me. It's, I really love that part. Oh yeah, I think you're completely right. It's, a, it's about proving that he belongs there more than that he thought he would actually get the, get the pin off of that. Now, what I love perhaps the most about this match is that Takayama proves so effortlessly how easy it is for even super heavyweights to work with and put over junior heavyweights. 
Those sorts of match combinations are what make this era of Noah so special. There is a point in this match where Kenta brings Takayama to his knees with his kicks, and as young as he is, as inexperienced as he is, he looks like he could get a flash knockout or pin over Takayama because Takayama is selling his offense like Kenta could turn the tides on him. He's treating Kenta like a credible enough threat. And when you look at the experiences that he has over the course of his trials, this is setting up what will be what Kenta will be able to use to justify moving to the heavyweight division full time. At around the nine minute mark, Kenta is able to leap onto Takayama's shoulders from standing and roll him forward for a pin attempt, which Takayama kicks out of, but Kenta's athleticism is insane. Kenta is also able to hit a suplex on Takayama at about 10 minutes in for a two count. At 10 minutes and 22 seconds in, Kenta lands the Busaikuni, his primary finisher at the time, but Takayama gets his foot on the rope. They get up and Kenta is landing slaps and kicks until Takayama goes down again. Takayama starts to kick out at two, but Kenta uses one of his outstretched arms to transition into an arm bar, which is really clever. And the crowd has a big pop to this, but it is a moment of youthful arrogance for Kenta as Takayama is able to roll through the arm bar and make him pay for it when they stand up and Takayama lands another knee flush to Kenta's midsection. That transition was insane. I actually remember thinking when I watched it, when I just rewatched the match, that it's really hard to believe he's so young into his career at this point, that he's so young in general, because that was just such a smooth transition. And Kenta came into the dojo not having that kind of experience. He didn't have grappling experience. He learned all of that training starting in the All Japan Dojo and then in the Noah Dojo. He picks up on it so quickly and so fluidly. It's it's deeply impressive. For sure. So Takayama finishes Kenta with a few kicks, two nasty drops to the mat, and then a final huge running knee. But it's actually the post-match interaction between the two that probably stays with me the most. Kenta's on the mat for a while. But when Takayama stands over him, Kenta pulls himself up to his feet by literally using Takayama's body to climb back up. And in a final act of defiance, he pushes his forehead against Takayama's body. And Takayama loves this. He holds Kenta's arm in the air for the audience who are applauding them both. He like ruffles Kenta's hair. There's clearly a lot of affection between them, even though Kenta is being totally obstinate. That moment where he climbs up Takayama's body is just so memorable for me and so indicative of who he is as a wrestler, as a character, and as a person. That moment for me is just Kenta. You can beat Kenta, sure. You can get the three count. You can submit him, perhaps. But you can't break his spirit. He will always get up. He will find a way to defy whatever odds are stacked against him, and he will always come back. He makes himself a different kind of unbeatable opponent in that way, if that makes sense. That is what I find most inspiring about Kenta. That moment between him and Takayama after that match is what Mara Fuji saw in the All Japan Dojo between him and Akiyama and never forgot. Moments like that are what absolutely drew me to him and made me a fan. And what is special about Kenta is in how he gets up, how he comes back, and how he refuses to let these setbacks define him. It makes his triumphs feel all the more incredible when they happen. This match really affected me the first time I saw it. And it still does to this day. I've only fallen more and more in love with it over time. So I have a question, maybe not really a question, but a rumination. Do you sort of see some similarities or connections to Takayama's fight with Don Fry 
where the value is really in how much he was able to withstand? Yeah. I've never really thought about that before, actually. It's interesting, but I think you can make a connection between the two. Takayama in that fight with Don Fry, he takes an incredible amount of punishment and withstands these incredible shots to the face. And it's not a long match. It's about six minutes long. And yet he walks away from that match still looking like he won. And Don Fry treats him like this incredibly worthy opponent, even though Takayama wasn't walking into these, these MMA fights with a lot of training. He was not as well-trained as the men he was fighting. But Don Fry certainly treated him like a worthy opponent. And that's how Takayama treats Kenta, even though Kenta's much younger, has far less experience. It's the same, it is the same interaction, really. I think you actually can make a nice connection there that I kind of really like. Yeah, I like the idea that you sort of can see almost a little bit of uh, Takayama in Kenta and it can account to their incredible bond in a lot of ways, how they have that similar ability to withstand and keep fighting that just makes them very special and makes them a worthy opponent, makes them a star. Oh yeah, I think that that's more than true. And I just want to say for people listening to if you have the means, and I'm going to link all of this in our show notes, but if you have the means, please go to Takayama's merch shop and purchase something from there. They just put up a lot of new shirts and hats, and they just restocked a bunch of keychains. Takayama suffered a cervical spinal cord injury in 2017 and remains paralyzed. Purchases from the shop go towards his care. I'm also going to link to the English donation site in case you prefer just to make a donation to him and his family. You can still follow Takayama's Twitter account and read the blog posts his wife makes about his condition, which I really do recommend. Please show support for Takayama-san and his family in any way that you can. Watch Takayama's matches. There's a lot of things that you can find on YouTube, and I believe that there's more things on AJPW.TV now as well. But Takayama's contributions to wrestling, to MMA, are innumerable. And the wrestlers that he trained and is responsible for the list is extensive, the people that he's affected and that people that care very deeply about him today that benefited from his training and from working with him. So keep supporting Takayama-san, watch his matches, talk about him on Twitter. It's important. <laughs> he's an important man and a, and a remarkable man. And um, that would that would go a long way. That's excellent. Thank you. And to wrap this up, say our listeners in between watching Takayama matches, go and watch this match and absolutely love it and want something similar, what would you recommend? Well, I'm really going to plug Kenta's trial series as a whole because Kenta fights so many important men in Noah, but also to him and his career. And so much of it is Kenta trying to overcome these important pillars of Noah so that he can be elevated to the next level in his career. So you're, you're seeing a lot of the same themes throughout these matches. He has great matches against Kobashi, against Misawa. The Junakiyama match is also worth watching. The Ogawa match is very good. So I do recommend sticking with this trial series. The Marafuji match is a different flavor than the rest of them. And the, the Guerrero match is, is very, very good too. The, the Hoovy match is very good. I do really recommend spending time with these trial matches because 
I think that you can watch a lot of trial matches from a lot of different wrestlers and see how they were used to elevate them and what came of that plan to elevate them. But I I feel like with Kenta, it is so clear how he benefited from them and how he changed in such a rapid, in rapid succession, really. So I, I highly recommend sticking with Kenta's trial series. They're, they're fairly easy to find online. And then really with Noah in that era, so, so many of those wrestlers are having these incredible fights against their seniors to try to find their, find their place, inherit Noah, as we talked about in episode <laughs> two. So you can't really go wrong in looking at other matches between, you know, Kenta has another singles match with Kobashi. Go watch that one. Watch Marafuji's singles matches with Mitsuharu Misawa. You can't go wrong with those matches because you're seeing the same elements and the same themes in them. What about a really recent match, uh, Sawama versus Takia Nomura? Yeah, you can definitely see elements of that too. It's absolutely brutal. It's great. They don't have the same relationship as someone like a Kenta and a Takiyama have, but you're going to see that just old veteran who is, who is there to ruin a young man's day. And that's always the good shit. So yes, you can absolutely watch that and get the same effect. And if I may make a, uh, I guess, a match recommendation of that same flavor. Recently, I went to um, Deadlock Pro Wrestling's fire taping. So the show hasn't actually been posted on YouTube. I'll link to it when it does. But the match is Jay Malachi versus Calvin Tankman. And when I watched it, as soon as the bell rang, I realized this is very similar to Takayama Kenta. I think I specifically said, oh, they're giving Kenta Takayama um, (laughs) down to Malachi, 18-year-old punk who claims that he is the young OG, this generation's Tupac. Um, he kicks away Tankman's hand when he goes for the, I was absolutely like this, this is the same mat. This is the same thing. And it scratched the itch very well. So when that match goes up, please, please watch it. It's really incredible. Oh yeah. I can't wait. I was excited when you and Seb told me about it. So I'll be watching that for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Rachel, tell me please about Mal versus Sanshiro Takagi from October 21st, 2018 at Ryogoku Sumo Hall. So this match happened while I was at a crossroads at my job and I was kind of just desperate for any kind of escapism. I had been toying with joining DDT Universe, which is now Wrestle Universe, um, before for several months, but seeing gifts of this match is what pushed me over the edge. I literally could not stop thinking (laughs) about several of these little gifts I saw and I needed the full context. I just needed to watch the whole thing. I was actually at my job. I was really frustrated. They had uh, put me in a bad position for the day. I actually subscribed to DDT Universe and watched the whole match at my job. And it was honestly the most freeing and meaningful experience, just watching this young man kind of pushed against his boss that he had thought lost his sense of childlike whimsy. And watching that match on the clock was sort of my own personal (laughs) rebellion, getting paid to, to sort of watch this absolute nonsense. And uh, yeah, that's how I got into DDT. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. So 
walk me through the backstory and the build. All right. So Mao started off as what we call a backyard wrestler in middle and high school. He actually taught himself wrestling by playing fire pro and breaking down the moves through that game. And he filmed his matches with his friends and posted them on YouTube. He like did them on playgrounds and just like in his backyard. This was actually a fairly common thing at the time. According to Rolling Stone Japan's July 10th, 2019 article, why did pro wrestler Mao hit Sunshare Takagi with a car, which was uh, translated really great by at Johnny Landmine on Twitter. Takagi had posted some tweet about a backyard wrestler becoming signed and becoming a proper pro wrestler. And Mao immediately saw his chance and he took it upon himself to just start sending and commenting with YouTube videos of himself to Takagi just to get his attention. And before long, they were exchanging emails. And then Mao, before we knew it, was set to debut for DDT. Mao had actually always looked up to Takagi, stating that in that same interview, he had decided on joining DDT after Takagi's match with Great Sasuke in Sumo Hall, which was also a weapons rumble. That match sure didn't feel like anything a mature, upstanding adult would do. It hit me right in my childish heart. (laughs) By the time Mao joined proper, though, Takagi had mostly stepped down from his role as a wrestler to focus on his role as the president of DDT. Mao was concerned about the future of, and I quote, and this becomes incredibly important, the bullshit of DDT feeling that if the older generation became too serious, there was no hope for bullshit in the younger generation. He writes, I had to make him feel that DDT bullshit that I loved so much directly on his skin. And thus- the most Mao quote ever. (laughs) Isn't it incredible? (laughs) And so in order to do that, Mao hits Takagi with a car. During his July 3rd match in Shinkaba First Ring, Mao commandeered the DDT company van and used it to run over Takagi, who had been doing commentary for Mao's match, which is a truly fantastic four-way Falls Count Anywhere match with Takeshita Higuchi and Masashi Takeda. From there, their feud heated up, turning into a cavalcade of bullshit including them crashing bikes into each other, attacking each other with volleyballs, attacking each other with chairs, just increasingly violent and absurd ways of trying to kill each other. It came to a head during the 2018 Campsite Pro Wrestling show on September 2nd, 2018, where at the end of the six-way tag team Falls Count Anywhere match, Takagi found a car and tried to use it to run over Mao. In return, Mao found another car and the two drove around trying to hit each other in this really tense car chase. (laughs) Mao's car stalled and that allowed Takagi to drive into him from the side. After the match, which the Brahmin brothers won, by the way, just <laughs> they just came in out of nowhere and suddenly remembered they were in a wrestling match. But uh, Takagi still had his moment at the end and he decided enough was enough. They needed to settle this feud before one of them actually killed the other and challenged Mao to a weapons rumble match at Sumo Hall. 
Mao remembering his first love of DDT coming from a weapons rumble match eagerly accepted, intent on showing Takagi the level of dedication towards absolute bullshit that he had and demanding the same from Takagi. So let's talk just a little bit about the match itself. One of the best things about DDT is its incredible match titles. So the very first thing you see is the title card. And this one is appropriately titled 27 year age difference, bloodbath between (laughs) president, 49 years old, and roster member, 21 years old, final and conclusive weapon rumble. (laughs) Says it all right there. So good. We then cut into a video package that is a summary of their feud to date. And more importantly, we get a video package of Mao training his weapon skills with his tag partner, Mike Bailey. His hammer flies out of his hands and he's greeted by a river god who asks him if he would prefer a gold hammer or a silver hammer. He turns both down. And for his honesty, he is given 100 aluminum cans and a magic Pico Pico hammer. And also the gold and silver hammer, just because. Watching this package, when I turned this on, made me realize I actually hadn't seen this match. And I thought maybe I had when you told me you were doing it, but I hadn't. Oh my goodness. So this was really fascinating for me. I always, whenever you, whenever you suggest a match or whenever like we do something like this, I wind up like learning about this, like some new period of DDT that just blows my mind. And this package was, was definitely something that blew my mind. It was, it was crazy. So this was interesting for me. Anyway, I'm really, I'm extra excited now knowing that this isn't going to be your rewatch reactions. This is going to be your first uh, watch reactions. Ooh. Okay. So Takagi first walks out in his full stone cold cosplay vest, uh, going back to his very roots as a wrestler in DDT, which I'm sure we'll discuss in our next episode, which is all about Takagi. But meanwhile, Mal walks out with Mike Bailey and his three hammers that he was gifted from the river God. And It's important because both men here are representing their own version of DDT. You've got Takagi with sort of this WWE parody, and then you have Mao with bullshit. (laughs) Mao opens the match by presenting one hammer to Takagi, wanting to settle this in the most DDT way imaginable. Takagi, however, throws the hammer out and Mao shrugs disappointed as he throws his own hammer away. Takagi has proven Mao's point early. This isn't the Sanchero Takagi that Mao had idolized years ago. This was his boss, an old man who has forgotten his love of bullshit. They lock up and exchange like any set of wrestlers in any wrestling match. Mao doesn't let this last long, taking out his magic Pico Pico hammer and attacking Takagi in an attempt to make him feel the bullshit on his skin. But Takagi no-sells it completely. So in a weapons rumble, each wrestler picks five weapons and they come out as though it were a delayed entry battle royal. Mm -hmm. So the first weapon is brought down to the ring. I'm not going to talk about every single weapon in this match. I have to leave a little bit of fun and surprise for when you guys watch it. But you do see some really specific patterns in the weapons that both men choose. This starts from Mao's very first weapon, which is a filing cabinet. 
a symbol of a serene and boring office life. However, when Mao opens it, the drawers are filled with crap, with raw chaos, paper plates, DDT pen lights, his signature rubber ducks, just crap spewed all over the ring. His second weapon is the 100 aluminum cans, and he just pelts Takagi with them and scatters them all over the ring. It becomes clear that Mao's strategy here is to cause as much chaos and damage as possible, making an absolute wreck out of the ring, ruining the sanctity of it simply because that's how he believes DDT should be. You have him bringing in Chinsuke Nukamura, complete with his paper plate WWE United States Championship belt, causing further chaos with a shot to Takagi's nuts. And this leads to a fantastic moment where both Chinsuke and Mao attempt a bomaye, only to both trip over the filing cabinet. Mao represents raw, uncut chaos. Nothing more, nothing less. The Chinsuke stuff might have been my my favorite part of this match. I was not expecting it. It really like surprised me and it made me laugh a lot. (laughs) My personal favorite part and probably the best weapon in my eyes is Mao's final weapon. And that would be the vacuum sealed bags and the vacuum. I've shown this match to friends before and the whole room immediately started chanting, you sick fuck. And I just know that Mao would be really, really happy to know that. (laughs) This gave me instant anxiety. So yes, Mao is a sick fuck. But on the other hand, we have Takagi's first weapon, which is a toddler's toilet wrapped in barbed wire. And this is where we start to see Takagi's own personal strategy. It's not just to hurt Mao physically, but also mentally as well. Using weapons that attack Mao's inexperience, makes fun of his young age, or talks about his career to date. The second weapon that Takagi chooses is 100 unsold CDs from Mao's idol unit with Makoto Oishi and Shunma Katsumata. Mao is just quickly humiliated as he looks upon these old CDs. Like he barely wants to look at them because he's so embarrassed. You then have Kaori from the Bed-In Girls and she further embarrasses the young Mao who's quickly flustered by Kaori's sexual advances with the implication that he is simply unable to handle an older woman. Takagi's final weapon is Mao's phone number. The psychic damage this delivers is immeasurable, blowing up Mao's phone as hundreds of thousands of people add Mao online. I choose personally to believe that Sami Zayn and Johnny Knoxville got this idea from Mao and Takagi during their own feud to an absolute excellent WrestleMania match (laughs) because they do the same thing. And I was absolutely convinced that they got the idea from DDT. Takagi here is really just showing off his years of experience with the strangeness of DDT, wielding it against Mao expertly in a personal way. While Mao may cause more damage and chaos, Takagi's weapons have a wit to them, showing Mao that there is still more bullshit to learn, and Takagi has plenty of bullshit left to teach. Another thing I really love about this match is that it just excels in and revels in all of its botches. I would argue that the failed execution of spots in this match are as crucial to the match as the weapons. 
you have Mao's bed weapon falling off the stage, which leads to this visible comedic panicking as Mao and the other DDT wrestlers sort of just scramble to get it all back together. But personally, the greatest moment of this match comes from the special bonus weapon, Andreza the Giant Panda. Mao sees this thing and he delights in the most Looney Tunes way possible in killing the giant beast with his legendary Pico Pico hammer. However, when he sneaks up to it, the suit deflates completely on its own before he gets even one swing in. Mao just stands there looking defeated and incredibly awkward as the camera just sort of pans on him. Takagi in the ring salutes to the fallen Andreza as <laughs> he is escorted out sobbing loudly as though a comrade had legitimately died. It's so candid and accidental and it just makes me die laughing every single time. <laughs> And honestly, I think this speaks to the quality of sincerity of this match. And that's something uh, Sarah Kershak talks about a lot with DDT is that you Mm -hmm. can go from poop jokes to the most heartrendingly sincere moments in the exact same match. And this is what this match speaks to, to me, is that sincerity. Without heart, botches like this become secondhand embarrassment. But with the childlike wonder and sincere love of the art they're making, their reactions to things like this drive the humor forward. And it drives the story forward too. DDT will never lose its way, no matter how far into corporate hands it may end up. This match acts as a promise to people like Mao that Takagi hasn't lost his love of the campy and strange. And it acts as a promise to people like Takagi telling him that the soul of DDT will be safe with the next generation. Mao ultimately wins this match with a Michinoku Driver 2 on Takagi through the filing cabinet, delivered just before placing a plastic bin on top of Takagi and doing a (laughs) cannonball 450 splash onto him, shattering the bin and further dirtying up the ring. He makes the cover with Takagi still on the filing cabinet And Mao proves that pure chaos has won. But Takagi still gets the last match as Mao picks up his phone after he gets the win and sees all of his missed calls, even taking a call from a random fan. So no matter how you spin it, be it chaos or mind games, bullshit reigns supreme. The two have an incredible post-match conversation that consists of them taking turns cursing into the microphone and promising to keep DDT weird and chaotic forever. The post-match is translated by the wonderful Hakusan on the old DDT Pro underscore Eng, E-N-G. They shake hands as Takagi's theme plays, and he leaves Mao to close up with Mike Bailey falling off the apron due to the sheer (laughs) amount of stuff in the ring. Just one more botch for the road. And Mal laughs. This match serves to tell us that it's okay to have a childlike heart and that DDT will always be there to appeal to it. So awesome. This one is just so fun. It's just such a fun match. And I guess my my question for you is, is piggybacking off of a conversation that we had earlier around Takagi and Mao because... They're interesting in that, you know, Takagi discovers him 
off of the internet and Mao has that connection to him and that he looks up to Takagi. So I would love for you to talk a little bit more about the two of them and, and why they work and how you've spoken before about the way in which Takagi sees himself in Mao and how that connection works. Yeah, so I'm going to spoil just a little bit of our next episode. I guess maybe give you a teaser. There we go. I'll give you a little bit of a teaser on Takagi's background. When he was in high school, he joined his school's judo club, but they didn't really do a whole lot of judo. They were all big pro wrestling nerds. And the advisor of the club was elderly and didn't really care what they did. So for the most part, they reenacted their favorite wrestling matches. He actually gets promoted to Don in judo by doing a body slam. <laughs> he, he very much uh, never really took on judo itself, but uh, he was reenacting wrestling with his friends. He was playing wrestling with his friends. So then you think about backyard wrestler Mao, who is just playing around and wrestling with his friends. And I can't see it any other way, but Takagi seeing this and seeing Mao's drive of going in and being like, hey, look at me, you should sign me. And seeing himself in that, Takagi's a huge go-getter. He's always, you know, one step ahead, introducing himself, finding opportunities, like sliding into Junakiyama's DMs to ask him to be a coach. (laughs) I see a lot of similarities there in just their attitudes and their absolute love of wrestling and and the bullshit. (laughs) No, that's wonderful. I'm glad that you, I'm glad I could get you to talk about that a little bit, because I do think that knowing those details and contextualizing them against these sorts of matches, which people can so easily overlook as like just a crazy weapons match, just in like, kind of like brush these things off. When you have those bits of story and connection, they become that much more meaningful. Absolutely. And of course it is enjoyable as just a crazy weapons match as well. But when you have that background and you sort of see the bond that they have and you see this uh this boy I mean he's very young sort of being crafted as the future and a very specific kind of future of DDT you have Endo you have Takeshita you know they're unquestionably the aces they're unquestionably the future of DDT but then you have Mao who represents the bullshit of DDT and you have Takagi who has always carried that and valued that and brought that to DDT. And for him to pass that specific torch is just really, really important and really special. I completely agree. It's such a great way to sum up the very dual nature of DDT and why it's important to hold both. (laughs) It's great. So that being said, where would our listeners go if they loved this match, but wanted some similar things to watch? So this one's hard because I was trying to sort of vary the things I was talking about. And it's hard not to recommend another weapons rumble match, which all of Takagi's weapons rumble matches are fantastic. He's very creative and he's very funny. The spiritual mental weapons that he picks are always really good. But I did think of a few and I definitely recommend watching the Zane Knoxville match that I had mentioned. If you haven't seen it already, please, please do. However, I think in terms of the feeling and sincerity that these two approach their weird philosophy of wrestling, the first match that came to mind 
is actually Hyper Masao versus June Kasai from TJPW's Yes Wonderland on May 3rd, 2018. So it actually took place before this match. Um, this match is deeply personal to Miss Sao, even more personal than Mao's own story. But in the end, both wrestlers are facing their personal heroes with Mao facing Takagi and Miss Sao facing Kasai. And those two heroes gave these you know, younger wrestlers something so, so important to them in pro wrestling. And that's a sense of joy and excitement. The competitors approach goofing off with the utmost sincerity and seriousness. And the post-match afterwards between Kasai and Misao is just nothing short of tear-jerking and just deeply emotional and sweet. I couldn't recommend it enough. So that one is definitely a must-watch. And to that end, Misao versus Senshiro Takagi has a very similar story, and that is from Grand Princess on March 19th, 2022. And that's also a really great match to check out. All right, so we're gonna hand it back to you, Alicia. And it looks like you have Kazuchika Okada versus Tetsuya Naito on January 5th, 2020 in the Tokyo Dome. I know this match is super deeply personal. Tell me about you watching this match and tell me what it meant to you. So I suppose I'll just begin by saying that Tetsuya Naito is very important to me, but he wasn't always important to me. When I discovered New Japan, I gravitated toward Shinsuke Nakamura, Katsuyori Shibata, Kazuchika Okada, and Hiroki Goto. Naito was still a ways off from going ungovernable. So while I could recognize he was talented, I had trouble connecting with his character. He came off a bit Tanahashi light to me. And at the time, I couldn't connect with Tanahashi either, which is crazy to me today. Because now I would go to war for Hiroshi Tanahashi, but then I couldn't do it, which is, you know, a shame. We should definitely talk about that another time too. Yeah. Put a pin in that. That'll be a conversation for a different day. But, but what changed for me was watching Naito go from Stardust Genius to El Bastardo when I was living and working in Brisbane. I remember him going away to Mexico and I remember putting on the New Japan show where he had his first match back. And I can remember everything he did during that match very clearly. And I was enamored instantly. It probably helped that becoming interested in La Sombra, Rouge, and Los Ingobernables is how I had started watching Lucha before his turn. But this appealed to me on every level when he came back from his excursion in Mexico. This turn for Naito happened at a really formative period of my life. I was working my first job out of college. I was in a different country by myself and sort of going through a lot of weird post-college soul searching. Who was I then? Who did I want to be? You know, just all these sorts of feelings. And I was pretty fucking depressed too, to be honest. And while I couldn't have predicted the success of the story Naito would go on to tell or that the risks he took would change the trajectory of his career for the better, his journey from Stardust Genius to Ungovernable really resonated with me. The themes that sprung from that story, like rebirth, redemption, how he demonstrated those themes in his wrestling, they gave me a lot of hope. And his work resonated with me in a way that, you know, I'd say only a select few wrestlers have really resonated with me. There's so much wrestling that I love, but I think Naito is so beloved because many of us can see a little of ourselves and our experiences and stories in him. And that's a powerful thing. I chose this particular match for a few reasons. 
It's the payoff to a very long road for Naito with the IWGP heavyweight title because he finally wins it on his own merits, no cheating or interference, and it's on the biggest stage possible. He also becomes the company's first double champion because the double gold dash is a big storyline going into this Wrestle Kingdom. That drama of him having to win the Intercontinental title off of Jay White on the fourth and then go into the main event on the fifth for both belts was just unbelievable. But what makes the match so important to me is that he had to face Okada to finally get the big moment he deserved. Their relationship is just really fascinating and special to me. Naito debuted professionally for New Japan in 2006, two years after Okada debuted for Toramon. But because Okada joined New Japan later than Naito did, Naito was still his senior in the dojo. According to this great write-up on NJPW 1972, Naito was an experienced dojo hand and senior young lion over Okada. Okada actually lost his pre-match debut to Naito on August 26, 2007, which I've always found really compelling. It's always the motherfuckers who have their pre-match debuts against each other that go on to have the most interesting relationships and stories. They don't have another singles match for like five years. But Naito and Okada end up going on different excursions. Naito goes to Mexico, comes back, starts having some standout matches against people like Tanahashi and Nakamura because his goal is to surpass them and become IWGP heavyweight champion. And he wants to do this before he turns 30. Okada goes to America. And when he comes back, he immediately upsets Tanahashi and becomes IWGP heavyweight champion at 25 years old on February 12th, 2012. In the blink of an eye, he had achieved Naito's dream and was beginning to surpass his senior in every way imaginable. Their relationship is beautifully illustrated in New Japan Academy, The Tale of Tetsuya Naito by Hiroku. The manga was originally done in Japanese, and one volume is available in English, which I highly recommend purchasing. Naito was interviewed by the author for the story. What I love about how Naito is illustrated compared to Okada and then even Tanahashi is that he looks like this really young, scrappy manga boy in it. But Okada and Tanahashi look kind of beautiful, and they're always immaculately dressed, chiseled, and put together. They're drawn to look very tall and imposing compared to Naito. You have to imagine this is very purposeful and demonstrates how Naito has probably felt about himself at times when compared to people like Okada and Tanahashi. What I also love about this manga as well is that it also explores Naito and Okada's real-life friendship that began in the dojo through flashbacks. There's a whole page of them going fishing together and playing catch with a baseball. Naito confides in Okada about his knee injury he kept secret from New Japan in order to gain admittance into the dojo in one panel. And then Naito says, let's take down the older generation together and bring in a new age. But the next several pages are present-day Okada winning the IWGP Heavyweight Championship from Tanahashi for the first time, and Naito is long forgotten because the Rainmaker has truly arrived. It's all really compelling, particularly because Naito worked with the author to tell that story. Yeah, you sending me that one panel of uh, the dojo flashbacks really was a game changer in me sort of understanding their rivalry and relationship. And then I went to go uh, read the volume and it's it's really great. It's a really, really good uh, manga. I definitely recommend it. But like I said, it was really crucial, at least for me, to understanding this rivalry. So I encourage anyone to please read it. Definitely. And we talked about this in our last episode of Kickout, New Japan Factions, but the disparity between Naito and Okada only continues to grow by the time the fan vote incident occurs in 2013. We all know Naito comes back from a long absence due to injury. 
New Japan is ready to fully commit to pulling the trigger on his main event push. He wins the 2013 G1, and the fans reject him outright. They put the Wrestle Kingdom 8 main event up to a vote, and the fans vote for Nakamura and Tanahashi to headline with Intercontinental title over Okada and Naito with the IWGP heavyweight belt. This whole incident is all the more embarrassing and difficult for him because it's Okada in the match with him, and it's not Okada the fans are booing. He comes up short against the junior who took his dream from him again. I don't have time in this episode to take you through all of the matches that happen in their series, so I'm just going to jump ahead to when Naito becomes ungovernable, and he beats Okada for the IWGP Heavy, but it's at an Invasion Attack show on April 10th, 2016, and Sonata interferes to help him get that win. It's not the win Naito deserved, and it comes with a massive asterisk. If anything, the disparity grows larger, and Okada defeats Naito to take the belt back on June 19th, 2016, at Dominion. Now, jumping ahead a bit, Naito goes on to win the 2017 G1 Climax, and this moment is massive for him. His redemption arc has come full circle. He's finally comfortable in who he is and really come into his own. His wins are his own. There's no asterisks anymore. The audience that once spurned him are now fully behind him, but he still has to win the IWGP heavyweight title on his own, and he needs to or should defeat Okada to do so. He fights Okada in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom 12 in 2018 and is defeated again because he makes the mistake of going for the Stardust Press, his primary finisher when he was the Stardust Genius, the last vestige of the wrestler he had to leave behind to get to where he was in that moment. He comes up empty and Okada capitalizes for the win. That's the last singles match they have until January 5th, 2020. Naito could have gone up against anyone that night. He could have faced Ibushi or Jay White, sure, but it wouldn't have meant nearly as much if it was anyone other than Okada. When you look at their series over time, it could have only ever been Okada. So now we arrive at the main event of night two of Wrestle Kingdom. The match has the typical slow build at the start that is pretty common for big Naito and Okada matches, but they find their rhythm after the first several minutes of the match. I watched this on World, so I'd say about 20 minutes in, but that's not 20 minutes of wrestling when you include the video package and their walkout, so just keep that in mind. There's a lot of really fun spots that just look super crisp, like Naito hitting a spine buster at 25 minutes in, and I do need to just stress This is a Naito and Okada match. It follows their formula to a T. You're not getting anything particularly new, in my opinion, but you are getting their formula at the absolute height of their games, and you're getting it at the highest stakes possible between them. If Naito couldn't pull out the win here, would he ever? Would he even still have credibility? Okada is the young ace, and with his history, he could have believably won and walked away the double champion that night. There was so much on the line here. The stakes make every single move in exchange so exhilarating, and you're brought to the edge of your seat every time once the pace picks up and they get going because Naito has everything to lose. Okada starts to target Naito's knees, and this just becomes really masterful, almost heel work from Okada. Naito is so over. This crowd is overwhelmingly here to see one man win this match, and it isn't Okada, which is an amazing feat in and of itself. But we know Naito's history with his knees, and so does Okada, so he starts to really target them. He gets Naito on the outside and even slams him down on a table, which looks brutal, and Naito almost misses the 20 count because of this. He gets back in, Okada hits a gorgeous German, but Naito manages to turn things around with a tornado DDT that looks awesome. Naito hits his first Destino at around 35 or so minutes, 
And because it's Naito and we've long left the era of protected finishers in New Japan, he has to hit more than one to bring down <laughs> Okada. They have this long forearm exchange where you could just feel Naito's defiance. He spits in Okada's face. Okada doesn't want to give his senior an inch either. Naito's dreams have never stopped him from dominating Naito before, and they won't stop him now. Okada goes back to targeting the knees, and the crowd starts raining boos on Okada, who really leans into this. It's great work from him because the crowd is beside themselves watching Naito try to pull this one out, and Okada knows exactly what his role is in this match. Naito hits a second Destino at 44 minutes in, and Okada kicks out again. From there, he pulls out the Stardust Press at great expense to himself, which was the most terrifying moment of the match watching it live easily. <laughs> because if you watch their 2018 singles match, you remember what happened when that move failed. But this time he lands it. Okada kicks out because Naito can't win with the Stardust Press alone. That time has come and gone, but he doesn't need it to win anymore. His walkout gown for this match had the phrase Toto Onada, which translates to all or nothing in Spanish, emblazoned on it. And Naito still has more left to give. He only needed the Stardust Press to weaken Okada enough to seal his fate with a third and final Destino for the three count. He finally overcomes Okada in the Tokyo Dome. He becomes the first person to hold the IWGP heavy and intercontinental titles simultaneously. And the atmosphere is electric for a man who almost watched his main event dreams crumble in front of his eyes seven years prior. They have this moment that Red Shoes almost ruins after the three count that I want to point out. Okada and Naito are still down. Naito turns over and reaches for Okada, but can only grab a fistful of his hair. Okada has his arm over his eyes and he doesn't pull away. I'm always interested in these little moments that pass between wrestlers after pins. These two have so much history. They've been through a lot together as performers and behind the scenes. This felt like gratitude passed between the two of them. English Com no sold this when I went to listen to what they said for the first time, but that moment between them is actually very beautiful and very significant to me. When Okada is leaving the arena, assisted by two young lions, Naito calls out to him on the mic, and the translation Chris Tarleton gave was basically, winning in the Tokyo Dome feels pretty good. Perhaps we'll do this again. And Okada raises his fist in the air, like the LIJ gesture, and then leaves on his own merit. The crowd and Japanese commentary really pop for this. The nature of their relationship changes after this match. It feels to me like Okada marked Naito as his equal that night, which is a huge gesture from Okada, who believes he is peerless. It felt like they had taken a step forward together. Now, to kind of close all this up, I want to share quotes from them about each other from a press conference from April 10th, 2022, ahead of their match at Wrestling Dontaku. Okada was asked, what does Naito mean to you as an opponent? And Okada says, Naito was my direct senior when I came into the dojo. When I came into New Japan from wrestling for a different company in Mexico, it was Naito more than any of the other seniors who made me feel how amazing New Japan was. Naito was the first New Japan wrestler to really wow me. He was my closest competition as Young Lion, and he was my New Japan pre-debut opponent. At first, he was the guy I really felt I had to surpass. As it happened, I did that pretty easily but I still couldn't get that clear win-loss advantage no matter how many times we faced off. It was always clear to me just how great he is. I was right to keep him in my view. Now here we are. 
I don't think rival is the right word, but we are always conscious of each other. When it comes to LIJ Naito, even I'm jealous of his charisma sometimes. So no matter how many times we face off, I always want to win. I want to put myself a clear step ahead. Now, Naito was asked the same question, and he said, what does Okada mean to me? In the best possible way, I can't stand the sight of him. When I first (laughs) heard he was coming into New Japan, I was ticked off he got in without having to try out. When he got here, you could feel from day one that the company was high on him. It annoyed me that someone from outside was getting that attention. He won the IWGP heavyweight title before me. Won the G1 before me, right? Or was I first? I forget. He definitely won the belt first, and that made that jealousy grow. However, I don't know why I feel this way. Now I've come to look at Okada from a wider perspective. I guess I've come to take things easier than before. But he's why I say what I say, think what I think. It's hard to explain, but he is a big part of who I am now. And now I look back on it, I'm able to honestly say to Okada, gracias. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love these quotes from them. I think they are so incredibly illuminating. I've called them rivals as recently as our last episode, but I would probably agree with Okada's analysis that they're not really rivals now. They've become something different. And reflecting on how much respect Okada gives him, while still maintaining his Rainmaker persona is just fascinating, while Naito still has that tint of bitterness to his comments, while also acknowledging he couldn't be who he is today without Okada. They've had three singles matches in 2022 so far, two of which have been for the IWGP World Heavyweight title. Naito has come up short both of those times, but they're great matches. He's still chasing Okada, but things are so different now between them. There isn't that dissonance, that disparity between them like there was before. So the question is, in having moved past the rivalry that drove them to Wrestle Kingdom 14, what can they continue to do on the other side of that together? Well, I'm going to throw that question right back at you. Actually, what can they do together? They've already gone through so much. I mean, they've had three singles matches this year. So what do you think is next for them from here? Naito will beat him again. You think so? Yeah. And I I don't really like to talk in certainties when it comes to wrestling because this all comes down to people in a back room booking this shit. And you don't know what those people in a back room booking this shit are going to do. But when you watch those matches that they've just had for the IWGP World Heavyweight title and you hear the way the crowd reacts to them and you see the way that these two draw together because they draw. There is no other logical conclusion in that Naito has to win again. He has to come back and beat Okada and become the, you know, the IWGP world heavyweight champion. It makes sense. And there will always be a need to see this. That is the beauty of the position that Naito is in now. People will always want to see this. People will always want to see him become champion again. And what is really beautiful is that we're not all sitting here wringing our hands, wondering like, my God, like, will this ever happen for him? Is he going to keep losing to the point where he'll lose all credibility and it won't ever matter. Even if he finally gets there in the end, like he's, he's gotten there. So it's, it's taken on a different meaning now. And yeah, I'm expecting him to play a big role in the upcoming G1. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if Okada and Naito headlined next year's Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to see it. I think I'd like to see it. It is very interesting the way you said it, where he's already 
achieved the big goal, but his story isn't over. And I thought that was really nice. I mean, that speaks to what's amazing about pro wrestling is it's never really over. Yeah. There will always be the the chase between them, even though that, that disparity between them has gotten smaller and smaller. And like I said, Okada did the remarkable thing of, of truly marking Naito as his equal, but that doesn't mean that the chase isn't there and that you can't still find the chase thrilling when the two of them always provide such thrilling matches. Very well said. So I know this one is hard, if not impossible, but if someone wanted a match similar to this or could scratch the same itch, do you have anything in mind? This is really hard because I do think that I do think that they're very hard to place in other companies' matches, feuds, but I think the closest you're going to get is by following Takeshita and Endo's feud in DDT. It's still different, but you will get that same bit of flavor in there. Although again, it's, it's, it, it is really different. It is really different, but you'll get the same sort of intense emotional energy that comes into two wrestlers who are very close, who are good friends, then becoming generational rivals. You'll still get that between the two of them. It's just that Okada and Naito, they're very unusual as people and their connection to each other is unusual. Um, <laughs> and the way, they, the way they treat each other is unusual. They, they, the way they treat each other is so different from the way that they treat other people. And that's why it's really hard to place their their feud in, in other, in other companies and other matches. But I would say, I would definitely recommend Takeshita and Endo. Yeah, I agree. I know I sort of threw that match out at you when you were uh, debating on different uh, answers to this question, but the judgment match from 2022 just happened on March 20th, definitely had that same sort of reward, at least watching it to me of Endo finally, you know, truly conquering his generational rival. And like you said, their relationship itself is very, very different, but uh, seeing him, you know, have that moment felt like the end of an arc, but not the end of his story. And that's exactly how it is with Naito. Yeah, absolutely. That sums it up pretty, pretty well. All right. So to wind us down, Rachel, you're going to talk about Hayato Jr. Fujita versus Keno from June 3rd, 2012 at and Hall. Can you tell me about the first time you watched the match and what it means to you? You actually remember the first time I watched this match because- I do I, already know the answers, but I want you to tell the listeners. Yeah. Well, I, I am. I am. I didn't watch it all that long ago. <laughs> I first watched this match in December of 2020, which I told a friend this and they were absolutely shocked that I had it because that speaks to what this match has sort of become to me. I'd been a Keno fan for some time at that point, but I developed this incredibly powerful interest in seeing more of Keno's older work from before he came to Noah. I stumbled upon a YouTube channel Ozzy Michi fan that had a really fantastic music video series on Keno's feud with Hayato Jr. Fujita. And I was hooked and started combing around for matches. This show was actually the very first bootleg that I had ever bought because I was just that desperate to see this match. 
after I watched this match, I took it upon myself to learn literally everything I could about both competitors, their feud, and how this feud shaped Hayato, Keno, and Michinoku Pro at large. I think it's safe to say that this match really kickstarted the way I look at wrestling and digest wrestling now. It helped me put to words what I love in wrestling matches and gave me an outlet to explore the things that make me most passionate about the art form. I'm not really exaggerating when I say that this match is sort of what helped me come to the conclusion that I wanted to do more work with Alicia and is what brought us to kick out today. Well, even more than that, not to say that my relationship with Alicia isn't important. <laughs> it also, it's, it's the most important thing in my life, but it also introduced me to Hayato, who I can safely say is a huge source of comfort and hope in a really turbulent world. And I hope to share just a little bit of that with you guys as I talk about this match. There is a lot I can speak on when it comes to the feud between Hayato and Keno. But when talking about this particular match specifically, I want to first talk about this great article that actually you, Alicia, had sent me mm -hmm. from a December 2009 edition of Shupro, in which they interview Keno, Hayato, and Jin Seishinzaki on their upcoming title match on December 12th of 2009. So a little further back than this match, but it is really, really important. All three of them discuss the differences between Keno and Hayato, particularly Jinsei. Jinsei states that Keno is something of a natural genius, a prodigy who can achieve whatever he wants the first time he sets his eyes on it. He won the Tohoku Junior Weight title immediately upon returning from excursion from Hayato in his very first return match. And that's only an example of how Keno works in accordance to Jinsei. Jinsei specifically says that he can give Keno an order, like go get the title. And Keno doesn't look backwards. He doesn't look to the side. He looks straight ahead and he goes boom, 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 and he makes it happen. Hayato, however, isn't that type of person. Jinsei goes into great detail to discuss Hayato's debut in 2004, how he spent a lot of time losing and a lot of time frustrated at himself for not becoming this ace that everybody seemed to expect him to become. It wasn't until he turned against Michinoku Pro and joined Kolun that he became a heel, a rogue to the promotion, and he was finally able to scrape up enough anger and fighting spirit to gain the title for the first time. Jinsei specifically says, wrestlers are creatures that grow through practice, thinking, and falling down. There is a view you cannot see unless you fall. When you fall and grasp something, you become stronger. Hayato is that kind of person. Now, I'm not going to go into full detail on their full feud. I might speak on it later, or even write about it, but we're going to fast forward two and a half years. Haito failed to take the belt back from Keno during that December match. In fact, he failed to beat Keno in any singles competition for two and a half long years. 
these two were locked in a war against each other, their differences and similarities colliding into a fierce battle of wills and brutality, both of them battling for the same coveted title of Michinoku Pro's ace. And in that time, Keno changed from this serious and straightforward hero of Empro to this power-hungry and arrogant villain. I'm actually going to say this right now. Keno's a little more mellow than he was back in 2012, Michinoku Pro. Like, he was a terror back yeah. then. If you think he's loud and annoying now, like, let me tell you. No, he was an absolute villain. And he made Hayato's life a living hell, flipping between outright bullying him to staunchly ignoring him when it came time to give Hayato a title shot. Until finally, finally, on April 14th, 2012, Hayato got the upper hand on Keno in this fantastic little match. I have a little thread on it on my Twitter, if you want to check that out. It's a great match. And he earns himself a title shot for June 3rd, 2012. But as we will see in this match, Keno wasn't done putting Hayato through hell. And Hayato's crawl from the bottom up to the top of Michinoku Pro had really just begun. Hayato enters this match first and instantly you can feel his crowd connection. Those years of struggling from the bottom have made him an absolute hero in the eyes of the Empro faithful. Even when he was healed back in 2009, Jinsei remarks on this in that same interview, how the crowd can simply connect to someone who has struggled and earned everything he has worked for in the face of every obstacle thrown at him, as opposed to Keno, who simply manages to achieve everything he wants by being extraordinarily talented and driven. And you can see this here. Though there was no proper face turn, Hayato isn't heel anymore. He is fighting for Michinoku Pro. You can see it in the way he points to the crowd. He's still sort of a punk, but he's their punk. And now he's facing his greatest obstacle yet to prove that he can lead the audience into the future. Keno, on the other hand, enters locked onto Hayato with no eyes for the audience whatsoever. He is cold. He is focused. He's not even the mocking heel, the, you know, anime-esque villain that we've seen in months prior. This Keno is a quiet killer intent on putting this man down before he even dares to call himself Keno's rival. And I just want to say very quickly, and, and you talking about the way that Hayato starts to enter for these matches. I remember talking to you about this very vividly during this time period where like you were sort of new to it, but getting me into it with like how enthusiastic you were. And then I, you know, we bought a bunch of bootlegs and it was great, but to, <laughs> wa to watch Hayato develop over time and how the crowd reacts to him and the crowd treats him, these Michinoku pro crowds at this time is, is something else. It's a different type of viewing experience the way that they react to Keno and to Hayato, it's almost unparalleled. It's, it, it really is. It's a different type of almost spiritual experience for these crowds coming to watch these two at the height of their programs. And, um, you know, I, I just have to recommend that you, that you really watch this match and watch other matches with them because it, the crowds really do make up part of the experience. 
that December 2009 match is a really great example because at that point, they had only really been feuding about three months, but they have already developed such chemistry with each other that the crowd absolutely explodes when they go for a handshake. It's really incredible to like watch the faces of the crowd they absolutely lose their minds and it's it's true a lot of people came specifically to see this feud it's really different than what you're going to get out of mpro you have two shooters in a you know lucha resu promotion and that's that's sort of just the appeal of them it's very very interesting and uh, of course bringing it back into the match with these two shooters they do start the match with exchanging strikes And then Keno proceeds to do as he has always done, and that is cause problems. And in this case, he's causing problems for Hayato. He delivers an illegal kick to Hayato's nads while the referee is looking the other way. And that sort of just starts out Keno's dominance. He throws Hayato onto the floor before tossing him into the audience, which I love the way that these two do floor work and chair work specifically. It's almost graceful in the way that they just throw their entire bodies into it. It's very practiced work. Uh, it is. It's very practiced. They, they very much enjoy it, but it still looks very, it's not in a killing the business kind of way. It still looks very brutal. Keno then takes Hayato and power slams him onto the floor and climbs onto the apron before crashing down into his ribs with a double foot stomp, what we now know is the PFS, but that's not what it was back then. Once Keno drags Hayato back into the ring after brutalizing him, you first see Hayato's incredible fighting spirit and resolve as he eats blistering kick after blistering kick from Keno and then has the nerve to gesture for more every single time, struggling to his feet just long enough to take another, sending him to the ground. A huge thing to note here is that Keno is not trying to soften Hayato's limbs to make his offense weaker. Rather, he just attacks Hayato's midsection directly. He is simply trying to cause Hayato pain. The strategy here is to make Hayato hurt. He is out to prove that Hayato is no threat to him, and the most Hayato can do is resist the pain for as long as he can before he loses. And with that said resistance, his crowd connection only grows stronger and stronger. With every kick he takes, with every lick of pain he endures, the crowd only cheers louder and louder. It's just like you said, Alicia, it's almost too much to be believed. His hope spots are palpable. And by the time he lands the PK from the apron, the crowd absolutely explodes. The force of the kick can be heard throughout the hall, both with their cheering and the sound of the kick itself. When they make it back into the ring after the second floor exchange, they have a slap exchange. And that presents a huge turning point in this match. Keno slaps Hayato to keep him at bay, to push him back rather than to simply kick him down. Hayato is every bit himself here, Rude and defiant and every bit Michinoku pros Hayato. He sticks out his tongue after receiving a slap, does a little head wiggle, and he delivers one of his own. He's just truly, truly defiant and rude and (laughs) full of fighting spirit. 
And then he does a shoot headbutt on Keno, but we don't cheer for that here on this podcast. No, 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 no. After this, however, the match becomes an exchange of control. The playing field is leveled and the two are established as true equals. Haito is now someone that Keno has to fight rather than just brutalize. And the two begin to exchange kicks at an even more blistering force than ever before. They take turns gaining the upper hand, but they always return to the center of the ring to demand more from each other, kicking each other again and again. And like it or not, Keno has been forced to acknowledge that he has met his equal rival. It's really important to note that Haito rarely uses moves that aren't kicks here. He wants to match Keno with what he's most known for, and he wants to beat Keno with it. This match is all about Hayato coming into Keno's territory, both as a fighter and as Empro's ace, and proving his place there. Keno responds by getting away from his kicks, pulling out neck breakers and body slams, and even a diving double foot stomp from the top rope. Like, we've never seen that before. (laughs) And uh, he has this really, really beautiful German in there, too. I definitely encourage watching for that. And the point of that is that he has realized that Haito now rivals him. And he has to put him away by pulling out every stop he has. He goes for his bridging dragon suplex, which is one of his finishers at the time. And Hayato reverses it into the KID clutch in a fantastic spinning motion while the crowd goes absolutely rabid. This is the final major turning point of the match. Even as Keno escapes with startling ring awareness, Hayato has weakened him and delivers a gorgeous and horrific kick straight to the skull, because once again, that is what this has always been about. When speaking on their 2009 match, Jinsei states that Keno has always been among the elite, but Hayato has fought his way through the weeds. This kick doesn't bring Keno down to the weeds. Rather, it shows that Hayato is now among the elite. The story of their kicks finally comes to its climax just a moment later when Hayato and Keno meet in the center of the ring one more time and deliver tandem kicks to each other's head in perfect unison. They both fall to the mat, but Hayato has that fighting spirit in a way that Keno doesn't, just that grit to fight from the bottom. And he stands up and capitalizes. Haito kicks Keno twice, and then as soon as Keno is on his knees, Haito lands Helm, his running knee strike to Keno's face. He then makes the pin, claiming the belt, claiming Empro, and claiming a singles victory over the man who had refused to call him a rival. Keno is carried off, and Haito faces the crowd as their new champion, their true ace. He promises to defend the belt against members of New Japan and Diamond Ring. He promises to make the audience proud to call him champion. And he then says, I'm Hayato Jr. Fujita, and I'm the new Tohoku Jr. Weight Champion. Yoroshikune, which is a ritual phrase meaning both sort of nice to meet you and I'll be in your care. And he takes a bow. And that's Hayato at his core, sincere and defiant in the face of all obstacles, full of love for his Michinoku pro, even when he has to fight through hell for it. 
On April 23rd, 2017, Hayato was sidelined with a severe knee injury that took him out of the ring. Over a year later, in November 2018, he announced that he had been diagnosed with a spinal tumor, an intramedullary tumor, and ependymoma. For five long years, he fought through hell again. In his January 2022 interview for Shoe Pro, he stated that a comeback was still possible, but he was prone to reoccurrence, and the tumors seemed to reappear every time he thought he was doing better. But on May 8th, 2022, Haito came to the ring and challenged current Tohoku Junior Heavyweight Champion Musashi to a match, a full return match, immediately challenging for the belt. And I don't know if he'll win on July 1st. It's just going to be hard to say. But I do know what Jinsei said all those years ago in 2009. And I know what the story of this match from June 3rd, 2012 tells us. And that's, there is a view you cannot see unless you stumble and fall. And I firmly believe that Haito will show that view to us sooner rather than later when he holds the Tohoku belt again and says, I'm Hayato Jr. Fujita, and I'm the new Tohoku Jr. weight champion. Yoroshikine. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> <laughs> love him very much. But He is extraordinary, and it's incredible to have him back, and I'm really glad that you chose this match because I know what it means to you. It means a lot to me because it was really special to watch you discover him literally at like the very infancy of basically our friendship so I got to watch that happen for you in live time which is just really special and really fun so it's so nice to revisit this one with you and hear you talk about it in this level of detail and care so that's beautiful thank you for doing that yeah you've you've been with me this whole time as I've uh, learned bits and pieces and uh, trolled every shoe pro I could find for uh, more and more information on this rare and extraordinary human being and this rare and extraordinary feud to be perfectly honest with you. Um, one fun fact is that this match actually made the short list for the 2012 match of the year uh, for Tospo, which you know, Tokyo sports, we all know is, you know, new Japan. They're going to be looking at the big promotions for this little promotion for Michinoku pro in the middle of the Tohoku mountains to have gotten enough buzz to make that match of the year recommendation to make that short list really does speak to just the chemistry and the power that these two have had as rivals. And even today, their rivalry does mean a lot to each other. I could speak on that for a very long time, but especially Hayato um, speaks very, very fondly of Keno and the time that they had together and what that means to him. And um, right now, one of the reasons he's working for a comeback is because he wants to be able to elevate M-Pro back up to where it can be so that he feels he's worthy to challenge Keno again. That's something that he speaks on a lot. I do really hope that they do meet in the ring to get again. I can't imagine that they won't now that a uh, comeback is fully and truly powerful or possible. Wow. I'm so emotional. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think, I think I completely agree with you. And I I think for anyone listening, Keno and Hayato's feud is it's critical watching, get in touch with us, 
send us a DM. Um, <laughs> just send a DM if you have any interest in watching some of these. Episodes. I was going to say that later too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that being said, and you, and you bring up some things, you know, we, we want to see him in a ring with, with Keno. There's another man I want to see uh, Hayato in a, in a, in a match with. There's a great interview on YouTube you can find with Hayato from before he, um, before he got sick and he was asked who he wanted to fight. And this match, revisiting this match reminds me so much of who he really emulates a little bit and resembles at the time. Oh, he does. He he wanted to fight that man then, and I bet he wants to fight that man now. That man is Kenta. But that being said, Rachel, if people watch this match and they love it and they want something similar, what are you recommending? So I thought really, really long and hard about this one because... Again, it's just when it means so much to you, it's hard to connect that relation to to something else. But I did decide on one match and that would be Hiroki Goto versus Katsuyori Shibata from Wrestle Kingdom 8 for the never open weight belt. And I feel like the stiffness of the match and then the storyline fall very in line with Haito and Keno's match with Shibata and Keno sort of playing that same dominant role, demanding their opponent prove their mettle to take their proper place as their rival. The strikes and brutality and ultimate triumph of Goto overcoming both Shibata and himself gives me the same feeling of pride and hope as watching Haito overcoming his own obstacles. And As we said, um, if you haven't seen that match, please do seek it out. But if you have seen that match and love it, please look into Keno and Haito's rivalry. I can't say it enough. Just DM me on Twitter. We'll we'll hook you up. I think you had a match recommendation as well. I do. Well, I have a, I guess a series because um, (laughs) I can't ever just recommend one match, but this match in particular always just, and you know, I think it's just in general. When you look at Hayato and Keno, they're a two sides of the same coin type of faded rivalry, which is a very common theme or trope in pro wrestling in general. That's the type of rivalry that Maru can grow to have, right? And you can see, or I can see Maru Ken in this match. Hayato in general really does have they're like him and Kenta are just kind of cut from the same cloth. They have the, the similarities in their style are there. And oh, sure. when you were talking about him no longer playing a heel anymore, but he's not really a face. And yet the crowd is embracing him like he's this baby face champion of theirs. That is exactly what the Noah the fan base did to Kenta, right? So there's that commonality between them that I think is very striking. And I think that if you, if you like those sorts of really intense feuds between two wrestlers in the same promotion, if you really like Hayato and Keno, you're going to like Maru Ken and vice versa. It's really high praise, actually, especially coming from you. And I, I really, really love that. So thank you for that stunning recommendation. That kind of wraps it up. This was a joy. And hopefully if you're listening to this, you've learned something from it. You know, there's still a lot of, we didn't do a deep dive per se, but we gave you some information behind these different matches and given you a little bit of, I guess, maybe some more insight into what we love 
specifically about wrestling and just a little bit more insight into our personalities and (laughs) our lives. So if you were really into this and it's a format that you like, again, please let us know on Twitter or email us at kickoutat299 at gmail.com and give us your genuine feedback on the formatting of this episode. We'd love to hear from you guys. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening to and supporting Kickout. We are just so grateful for all of you and appreciate your patience and kindness around our delayed release for the New Japan Factions episode. I hate sounding like a broken record, but please don't forget to subscribe to us or follow us on your platform of choice that you can get our episodes first when they drop. Subscribing to us and giving us a five-star review or rating on your preferred platform really does help us as we grow Kickout. So please help us out by doing that. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at Kickout299. And then you can find me, Rachel, at Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y star. And you can find Alicia at Shiranui Kai with two eyes. Don't forget, you can always go to kickout299.wordpress.com. You can find reviews, different articles, all kinds of stuff there. And again, our email is kickoutat299 at gmail.com. You can submit questions and feedback there. And if you have an interest in submitting a pitch for the blog or the podcast, please email us there or DM us at kickout299 on Twitter. And we've got some future episodes planned for you. We're getting back into the deep dives with Sanchir Takagi on June 7th. We've got our Noah Factions episode on June 21st, and then we have an episode on Antonio Inoki versus Muhammad Ali on July 5th. As always, make sure you follow our Twitter to see what else we have planned for coming episodes and projects. Thank you all so much, and we'll talk to you soon.